It's a privilege that this is indeed a season of comfort and of joy as we consider Jesus Christ and His birth. Please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 7. The message this week, um, I had intended to preach one more Christmas message, um, but I'm actually going to transition into a, a New Year's message this week. And um, it's a, a topic that has been heavily on my heart of late and one that I believe is very good as we step into a new year. Thank you, sir. Luke chapter 7. You know, we stand on the cusp of, of this new year. Before this week is out, we will be into 2015. And it's common and appropriate when there is a, a major milestone or a great transition that we as humans use these sorts of events to reassess our own condition, to seek improvement in various ways. Such as common around New Year's time, we, we often call it the New Year's resolution. And I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions myself, uh, simply knowing my own personality, but I do not spurn the concept we all know the problem with New Year's resolutions is not necessarily in theory as much as it is in practice. It is one thing to say we're going to do something and another thing to do it and to stick with it. We've all seen the revolving door of resolutions before, the revolving door of resolving something, resolving to be more organized, resolving to get out of debt, resolving to fill in the blank. And it's good, and it's right, and it's fine. But oftentimes these resolutions fall flat. And they do so for many possible reasons. I believe one of the most common is that the things that we want, the things that we want to do, the things that we desire to resolve, are rooted in what we see to be luxuries rather than necessities. I don't need to get more organized. I want to get more organized. And so I resolve to get more organized, but I lived just fine before I was organized. So it's hard for me to compel myself in one moment to desire to live uh, more organized and then to, to really stick with that. I want to get out of debt, but you know, I'm still alive and, and such, and so it's harder for me to, to see as much compulsion with d things like debt and weight loss and such. There may be a little bit more compulsion as there's health involved, as there's financial stability involved, these sorts of things. But oftentimes our resolutions fall flat because it's hard enough to do them when it's a necessity. It gets far more difficult when we see it perhaps as a luxury. Such is really the case with all things in life. We do them, we stick to them, when doing so is finally more important to us than the alternative. And that's really the bottom line. We, we resolve to lose weight or to get out of debt or to get more organized, but the time that it actually happens is when we finally decide that doing that thing is more important than the alternative. That losing the weight is more important than that desire to eat or the things that we eat, or the desire to sit on the couch instead of actually going out and doing something. That the desire to get organized is, is more important to us than shuffling through papers every day trying to find what we need on our desk because our desk is a mess. That 
getting out of debt is finally more important to us than the desire to spend money that I don't have. And so it's when something becomes important enough that we actually stick to it. And the same is true, not just in the physical realm, but it's true in our obedience to God in our alignment with godly virtues in our lives. We, we obey God. We assume virtuous habits when the things of God finally become more important to us than the alternative. We do what God desires us to do when it becomes more important to us than ourselves, than what we want to do. So you don't read your Bible or you don't pray as often as you ought or you don't come to church as often as you should or maybe you have a bad habit or an addiction or persist in some sin that you know should not be in your life. In all of these circumstances, if you're a born-again believer, what the Bible tells us is that we are free from sin, which means the only thing holding you to that thing you ought not be doing is yourself. And when you give it up will be when God and His will becomes more important to you than you and your will. That's what I'd like to talk about this morning. I'd like us to begin to solve this problem of sin in our lives, of the lack of godly virtue. As we step into a new year, Perhaps some of your resolutions, if you do such a thing, would be spiritual resolutions more than physical resolutions. One of the things I like to do every year is read through the Bible in a year. We have Bible plans on the back table, and, and uh, a lot of times people will use the transition of the year as one of those kickstarts to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through the Bible. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to... Figure out everything that it says. I'm going to learn it better. I'm going to memorize this much this year. I'm going to spend more time in Bible reading. Excuse me. I'm going to spend more time in prayer. And those are all wonderful things. But they don't, they're not wonderful. They, they get discouraging when we fall flat on our face. When we try and we fail and we try and we fail and we try and we fail and every year we say we're going to do these things and then we don't. We have that bad habit and we say, I, I need to get that out of my life. It's not there. It shouldn't be there. But we We fail. And so I'd like us to begin solving this problem. And I'd like us to begin to think about it in terms of God's will versus our will. In terms of selflessness versus selfishness. See, we all have things in our lives we know we need to do in obedience to God, but we don't. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the Bible tells us, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Those are the verses that prove the statement I just made a few moments ago, that if you are a born-again believer, you are free from sin. That means the only thing constraining you in regard to sin is yourself, your choices, your desires. As Paul describes the struggle, he teaches that as a believer, you have two parts of you, your flesh and your spirit. The flesh is that part of us which desires to serve ourselves which desires to rebel against God. 
The spirit is the part of us which desires to serve God and to submit to His will. Now, the unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling. He is spiritually dead, which means he has nothing but his flesh. He can submit to none but his flesh. Now, his flesh can willingly constrain itself in a desire to be what society might define to be a good person. But they have no capacity to relate themselves to God and to submit themselves to the will of God and to please God because they have no capacity to live and to walk in the Spirit of God. But the believer has two parts of him. And when a person gets saved, when they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ, they are unplugged from their flesh and they are plugged into the Spirit and God hands us the keys and says, it's up to you, are you going to live in the flesh or are you going to live in the Spirit? You have the power to do whichever but you have to choose. And so we find ourselves sometimes unplugging ourselves from the Spirit and plugging ourselves into the flesh, right? And living in the the power of the flesh, doing things our way, doing things the way we want, reasoning through things on our own and saying, this is the way I'm going to go. Sometimes we try to justify it biblically. Sometimes we try to convince ourselves that God is, is okay with what we're doing. But it's us who have plugged ourselves into the flesh. And the Scriptures tell us that when we repent of our sin and we confess our sin before God and we get right with God and we align ourselves with His will again, that is the means by which we unplug ourselves from our flesh and we plug ourselves back into the Spirit of God and we start living through the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. A crude example, but I hope it's understandable. For the rest of our lives, the Spirit and the flesh will be at war with one another. Your flesh will not go away until the day you die or until the day the Lord takes us home. Until that day, you will fight this battle. And it's a battle where you, as a believer, will so desperately desire to do what's right, but you, as a sinner, will find yourself wanting to do wrong. And today I want to talk about aspects of winning that battle. The battle between the Spirit and the flesh. Walking in the Spirit and defeating the flesh. For years I was convinced that winning this battle over the flesh was a willpower thing. It was a discipline battle. It was a willpower battle. But, you know, willpower and discipline can only be part of the solution when we talk about battling with our flesh. In many ways, willpower and discipline are the outworkings of a much deeper solution. So let's spend our time today talking about a major key to spiritual success and our resolve to obey God's will and to form in our lives godly virtues that we know are pleasing to God and that have a proper testimony before Him. And we come to Luke 7. This is a fairly familiar story. We begin in verse 36. Let's go ahead and read the whole story together. One of the Pharisees desired him that he, would eat meat, uh, that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, the woman, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with, her, with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. He said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor who, which had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. <coughs> Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. He said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gave me, gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. He said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? He said unto the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. We begin in our text in the house of one Simon the Pharisee. Within the context, we see that as a whole, the Pharisees and lawyers had already outright rejected the message of Jesus Christ as Messiah. They refused to be baptized with the baptism of John. They refused, furthermore, to, re, uh, to regard the teachings of Jesus Christ, to repent, to follow Him. The Pharisees as a whole, as a unit, had completely refused Him. This one Pharisee, however, and for reasons unbeknownst to us, invited Jesus to dine with him in his house. Now, we should not interpret this inherently as a backhanded invitation, but we also don't necessarily need to interpret this as this Simon being a believer or a man of faith. We do know from further in the text that Jesus was not treated with particular honor in this house as he was not even given water with which to wash his feet, a custom that was common and often expected in Hebrew culture. Foot washing was considered one of the absolute most humble, most abject, most submissive things that one could do in a culture. In most places, they would present you water because of the dust that was on people's feet. They would present water and you would wash your feet yourself. In very rare cases, among the very wealthy, they had a servant who was designated to wash the feet of guests. And that would be a job that, that would be absolutely... Um, absolutely uh, abject, we might say. It was a job of, of, of serious humility if you were given the job as the foot washer. And the Scriptures tell us in verse 7, excuse me, verse 37, that while Jesus was at this Pharisee's house, there was a woman who arrived. And the woman is described in verse 37 as being a woman of that city possibly still the city of Nain, as that's the last account we have in the book of Luke as to where they were, is the city of Nain. And the Scriptures tell us that she was a sinner. Now, before we continue, I would like to um, cut off at the pass any misconception that this woman was Mary Magdalene. It's often debated as to who this woman was, and there are many who have ascribed the identity of Mary, the Mary, brother of 
La- uh, sister of Lazarus and um, sister of Martha as this woman. Uh, the scriptures make it very plain that this is not Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene engages in a similar instance of anointing Jesus and washing his feet. This is recorded in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. But these instances conflict on several important details with the account here in Luke 7, leading us to be able to say with absolute certainty that this woman is not Mary. The text says that she was a sinner and goes into no more detail than this about the nature of her sin. However, the vague nature of the description, particularly in that the description came both from the Pharisee Simon within the narrative and from Luke the evangelist as he wrote, it's somewhat, we might say that the description is somewhat deafening in its silence. In much the same way, we prefer to be very benign when we designate um, sins of indecency We talked this morning about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and um, as we speak of those sins which are um, primarily sexual in nature, we tend to use terms that are are, uh, a little glossy, not to pretend like things are better than they are, but in order to maintain some level of decency among our own conversation. And such was the case in uh, this particular context that as Luke is describing this woman and her vocation, um, he's being very um, benign in his description, he's, uh, but, but it's very clear as to what the problem is. There's very little doubt that this woman was a prostitute. And so she was abjectly abhorred in the eyes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees being men of piety and deep religious devotion she would have been outright rejected as a human being by them. And this woman, having learned about Jesus' presence in their city and in Simon's house, came and brought with her an alabaster box of ointment. Now, in the case of Mary's ointment, in the other Gospels, the disciples make specific mention of the very high value of her offering. As a matter of fact, the disciples were somewhat upset with Mary for breaking the alabaster box over Jesus because it was so it was worth so much money they actually kind of counted it a bit of a waste. In this text, we do not see any uh, indication of how much it was worth. However, what we can be confident about is that she had purchased the ointment with the fruit of her sinful lifestyle and that it perhaps was a part of the previous lifestyle that she had been engaged in. And the scriptures tell us in verse 38, excuse me, in verse 38, that she wept over Jesus' feet, washed them with her tears, kissed them, and anointed them with this perfumed ointment. We mentioned already the stigma of foot washing in Hebrew culture. This was not an insignificant action on the part of this woman. She was showing complete submission abject humility in her actions. Not just to wash the feet of Jesus, but to wet His feet with her tears and then to wipe them clean with her hair. This was abject humility in its purest form as she fell before the feet of Jesus. Simon was naturally troubled by these actions, though he said nothing out loud. 
Much rather, he used it as a means of confirming his own unbelief in many ways. If this man Jesus really was a prophet, he said in his heart, he would know that the woman that, that has touched him is unclean, that she is a sinner. His idea here is that this woman would have, or that Jesus would have recognized that this woman was one who was defiled, and he would refuse her such degrading attention. But Jesus didn't refuse her, did he? He didn't turn her away. He knew what she was. He didn't turn her away. He knew who she was, and he didn't turn her away. And the reason why Jesus Christ did not turn away this woman we might say, is twofold. We know that Jesus loved her, right? Jesus Christ loves all men. His desire would be that all men would come to repentance. We do not see instances of Jesus Christ specifically turning people away except for those who had turned themselves in unbelief. Jesus loved her. We know that. But there's something just as important about this event that we need to remember. Jesus noticed something in this woman. And what he saw was not only that he loved her, but he recognized as well that she loved him. And we can't lose that. It wasn't just that Jesus didn't turn her away because he loved her. But this woman made it clear that she loved him. Simon is speaking to himself about the merits of Jesus' acceptance when Jesus speaks up in verse 40. And he says to Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. So Simon says, Master, say on. And in verse 41 and 42, Jesus Christ gives a hypothetical. We read it, but let's consider it again just briefly. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? So two men, both in debt to one man. One man owes the other 10 times the amount of the first. One man owes 500 pence, the other owes 50 pence. So we're, we're seeing that, that there are two men, both are in debt, but what we are seeing is a tremendous disparity between the amount that they are in debt. Ten times the amount in debt by debtor number one as compared to debtor number two. And so the creditor sees these two and neither one has the means by which to pay. Debtor one owes 500. He has no means by which to pay 500. Debtor two has only 50, but debtor two has no means by which to pay the 50. And the creditor, frankly, forgives both debts. He says, debtor number one, you owe me 500. You now owe me nothing. Debtor number two, you owed me 50. You couldn't pay it. You now owe me nothing. Forgiven. Done. Gone. It's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing for both men. But let's be honest here. One of these men benefited much more than the other. In fact, one of them benefited ten times more than the other because he had ten times the amount of debt forgiven. And Jesus' question to Simon within the context of this scenario is found at the end of verse 42, and it is this. 
which of them will love him most? And it's a fairly straightforward question. Which of the former debtors will love the creditor who forgave his debt more? Which of the men will be most appreciative of this creditor's kindness? It's not a trick question. It's a rather obvious question. It stands to reckon, <coughs> excuse me, it stands to reckon that the man who was most greatly benefited from the kindness of the creditor would be the one who would be most greatly appreciative of the kindness of the creditor. If the amount is any indication, the man who owned 500 pence, 10 times more, that should be 10 times more appreciative than the man who only owed 50 pence for the forgiveness. And this is the answer Jesus received. It's the answer he expected. It's the answer he received from Simon in verse 43. Simon answers and says, I suppose that he to whom he forgavest most. Jesus says, you've rightly judged. You're right. You've passed the test, Simon. Good job. But what does it mean? Why ask the question at all? And that's the bridge that Jesus Christ builds in verse 44. Bridging the gap between this illustration that he just gave and the events that, that happened um, with this woman and Jesus. And he asks Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see what she just did to me? See, Simon gave Jesus no water even to wash his own feet upon entering Simon's house. But this woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them clean with her hair. Simon wouldn't even condescend to give him water. The woman transferred the filth of Jesus' feet to her own hair her own body. Jesus continues to paint this contrast in verse 45. Simon, when Jesus Christ came into the house, was given, uh, gave Jesus no kiss of salutation. This would have been a very common thing. Still happens in several cultures today. When uh, I went on uh, a vacation many years ago now to France, my, wa- my, my mom was born in France and my grandmother is French and, and uh, we went to France and one of the things we had to get used to was kissing people's cheeks. Because that's what you do over there. And it's a, it's a standard greeting among people, particularly of, of those who um, are family or, or acquaintance. And um, it's what you do. Similar idea here. Jesus Christ said, I came in and you gave me no show of affection or hospitality by giving me a kiss. But this woman, since I came in, since I arrived and she arrived, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, he continues with the contrast. My head. You didn't anoint my head with oil. And this is a different word than ointment. Oil has the idea of of simply the common idea of olive oil. Whereas the ointment that the woman was using uh, is a fragranced oil. It would have been something far more rare, far more costly, um, far, uh, certainly better smelling. The host did not adorn his guest with oil, once again showing hospitality and honor to a a man who, by all accounts, was worthy of it. He says, but this woman, far from olive oil, 
brought a costly oil, a perfume, and anointed my feet. The feet, feeling unworthy even to face him, much less to anoint his head. And Jesus' point as it pertains to his illustration and his analogy is given in verse 47. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Now, to be clear, Jesus' statements here about forgiveness, it was a statement of perception, not a statement of reality. Do you understand what I mean by that? The sins that this woman had committed were by societal, by religious, by moral standards, uh, worse than other sins. The worst sins that can be committed in, uh, in, in many ideas, the, the moral degradation of a life of prostitution is one that in many cultures, uh, in many societies, and in many religions uh, is, is, is deeply depraved. <coughs> she would wake up every day. She would suffer the physical and emotional consequences of her life of immorality. Um, it, it, it's a terrible sin. On the other hand, the Pharisee Simon had likely spent his life in deep piety. He had not gotten into the sins of society and culture. He had avoided many of the natural consequences of a life of immorality, of a, of a life of, of a poor decision-making. We can make a parallel to today's world very easily. There are men and women in this room who have known what it is to live a life of immorality and debauchery. There are men and women in this room who have known what it is to suffer the physical consequences, the emotional consequences of, of their sinful choices. There are people who have known what it is to suffer the consequences of, uh, of drinking and of drugs and of a promiscuous lifestyle. And so, because of this, we might say those people really know what they've been saved from. There are others in this room, like myself, who simply do not. I was saved at a very young age. My parents are believers. I don't know what beer tastes like. Never even tried it. I've never done drugs. My first kiss was on my wedding day to my wife. She's the only girl I've ever held a hand with. I don't know what it is to go through the emotional and the physical issues of the choices that we would typically call of, of lacking virtue. I don't know. I can't relate. So from a human perspective, God has less to forgive me for when I confess my sins and, and, and uh, when I accepted Christ as my Savior. He, he had less to forgive me for at salvation, we would say, than perhaps some of you. From a human perspective, I've lived a more righteous life. But this is where we paint the difference between perception and reality. From God's perspective, we know that that's not really how it works, is it? Romans 14.23 tells us, Whatsoever is not a faith is sin, that anything good that I have done in my life prior to the day I was saved was still not good in the eyes of God that I have been redeemed from just as much wickedness. My heart has been, has been 
cleansed just as much as any other heart. My heart was just as black as any other heart before I accepted Christ as my Savior. My capacity for evil was just as deep, was just as real. My desire to do evil was just as potent. I can't really know that because it was when I was four and five years old. The manifestations of that evil heart had not fully blossomed. But it was there. All the desire and potential to do evil was still there. All the desire and potential to sin was still there. So I have not had less that I've needed to be forgiven for from a spiritual perspective as we might think of from a human perspective. What Jesus is trying to say here is that this woman actually recognized her sinfulness. And by recognizing her sin, she was able to fully appreciate the need for and the impact of forgiveness. So this woman greatly loved Jesus because she knew what Jesus had saved her from. That's the idea of what Jesus Christ is saying. But Simon, whose heart was just as wicked, could not see his sin. His pride, his arrogance, and even his religious devotion had blinded himself to his own sinfulness. And so he did not appreciate the need for, nor did he appreciate the impact of forgiveness. And so this man did not greatly love Jesus because he did not understand how much he needed to be forgiven. See, every single one of us needs to be forgiven. There's not a righteous thing that we can do that will earn us favor with God. I have two three-year-old daughters. They're cute as buttons, but they have black little hearts. They have a sin nature. It has not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They have not. Uh, it's been covered. It's not been accepted. Yeah. May I be clear there? Jesus Christ's payment covered their sin, paid for their sin, but they've not, not accepted that gift for themselves yet. They have not been made the new creation that we've been memorizing about for Second Corinthians 5.17. They've not been made a new creature. Their sin natures are still fully in charge of their lives. But we all need forgiveness. And the difference between the woman who got down on her knees and anointed Jesus Christ's feet and wiped them with her hair and wet them with her tears, and the man who stood in his place saying, who is this woman? Why is she here? Doesn't he know she's a sinner? She's not worthy. I'm not going to give Jesus anything to, to wash his feet. I'm not going to anoint his head. The difference between the two perspectives was not how sinful they were. It was how much they saw themselves as sinful. The difference was humility. The woman responded in love and in obedience and in submission because she rightly recognized her own sinfulness, Jesus' holiness, His unfailing love, and His forgiveness. Simon responded with indifference and arrogance not just to this woman but to Jesus Christ Himself because he incorrectly assessed Jesus Christ's worth compared to his own. And as we close today, I submit to you that all too often you and I are more like Simon than we are like the woman. Why do we fail to honor God as we ought? Why don't we do what Jesus Christ has told us to do? 
Why does our life lack the personal virtues that we know are best for us before God and as a testimony before others? To whatever degree we fall short, it is because we have placed a love for ourselves above a love for God. Because we don't love Him enough. And in consistency with our example today, one of the primary reasons why we fail to love God enough is because we simply don't see our sin the same way God sees it. It's because we simply don't have a deep enough appreciation for what happened the day you received Christ as your Savior. It's because we simply don't recognize the depravity of our own hearts and all that God has redeemed us from. And so we fail to realize or perhaps simply to remember that it is Jesus Christ that has redeemed us and how worthy that makes Him to receive from us our obedience. If we truly understood our own sinfulness and truly understood God's holiness, we would begin to see exactly how much higher God is than we are. God isn't just better than us. He's beyond us. His holiness is not just far beyond us, it's unreachable, it's unattainable to us aside from Christ. And we, when we understand exactly how far God is from us, how much higher, how much greater, how much holier He is than us, we begin to understand better the significance of God sending His only begotten Son named Jesus Christ to bear our sins and thus to close the gap between us and God. Whereas God was here and you were here and there was no way for you here to get to here no matter what good things you did, Jesus Christ came and He did this. And that is so, so significant. And when we understand that the irreconcilable difference between your sin and God's holiness has been reconciled in the blood of Jesus Christ, in His death and in His resurrection, you will love Him as you've never loved Him before. And your love will compel another virtue. The same virtue that the woman's love for her forgiveness compelled in her. And that's the virtue of humility. And this humility will bring you to a place in your life where you will gladly crucify your flesh willingly set aside any and every sinful pleasure, joyfully pursue God's will above your own, ache for the personal presence of God in every moment of your day, vehemently guard your heart and your mind against self and against sin, and consistently seek those things which are above. And when we find ourselves in this place of complete humility before the will of God, on the authority of Scripture, I'm happy to remind you that you will find yourself in another place as well. That if you will completely humble yourself before God, you will find yourself in a place of absolute spiritual exaltation before Him. The Scriptures tell us in James chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. To whatever degree you are willing to put God before yourself, God will exalt you. That if you are willing to pursue obedience to the Word of God above your own pleasures, you will find honor before the throne. That if you will pursue godly virtues above self-indulgence, 
you will find honor before the throne. That if you will pursue a good testimony and a good example above your own right and your own entitlements, you will find honor before the throne. And I leave you with one of the many scriptures where this promise is made. We studied it not too long ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. So how are you doing today? We're coming up to a new year. It's a good time. Transition into a new year to change some things. You've noticed I've not listed particular sins outside of um, those that we're dealing with in the passage and such. And some of the things I'm speaking of today may not be sin inherently. It may be a good, better, or best issue. You've been choosing what's okay. It's not sinful. But you've known God has laid it upon your heart that it's time to up the ante. It's time to bump up your testimony. It's time to take the next step. Perhaps you've been fighting it. Perhaps you haven't been fighting it. I don't know where the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart today, but I wonder if a part of the problem that you're facing as you wrestle with that sin or you wrestle with that virtue or you wrestle with that decision is that you simply haven't humbled yourself to a place where God's desires have overridden your own. Perhaps it is you've forgotten just how much you've been forgiven and so you have failed to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His claim on your loyalty. In other words, perhaps you just don't love God as much as you should. Perhaps it is that you've become so caught up in the pleasures of this life and the temporary rewards that these pleasures promise you that you have overlooked just how much better the rewards of the righteous are in heaven. Do you have a heart of humility before God today? Are you fully submissive to God's will and to God's Word? Are you walking in sweet communion with God, seeking first the kingdom of God, living moment by moment in the Spirit's power, seeing victory over sin? This is the privilege of the Spirit-indwelled believer. Will you sin? Yes, we all do but sin shall not have power over you. It need not have power over you. Nothing in the Bible gives us the idea that any of us will live sinlessly perfect. But the Bible does tell us that we have been given the capacity through the Spirit of God, if you are a believer, to live in power over your sin. The question is, are you willing to humble yourself before God and die to self to have victory over your flesh. Let's pray together.